Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Wednesday, August 26th. You're listening to Q. This is the podcast version of our show. My name is Tom Power. I get to nerd out a little today in a way that uh, I, I don't get to do I, I don't get to do as often as I'd like, but I probably get to do more often than most people would want, which is I get to talk about wrestling. I grew up loving professional wrestling. I grew up watching, you know, WWF. My favorite wrestler was Bret the Hitman Hart. Uh, I used to love him watching him fight Shawn Michaels in the cage match. And then when I got older, I went back into the early days of wrestling and started watching Hulk Hogan and, you know, Macho Man Randy Savage and all that. And David Arquette is a bit of a kindred spirit. I mean, you might know him as the bumbling cop in Scream and is also just one of the biggest stars of the 1990s. He was on the cover of The Hollywood Reporter alongside Leonardo DiCaprio as this sign of like the next great roster of Hollywood stars. Anyway, he ends up joining wrestling briefly to do a promotion for a movie he's in called Ready to Rumble, and he sort of ruins wrestling. Now, that's not my opinion, but that's the opinion of wrestling fans all around the world, that his presence in it as an actor who got the belt, who didn't deserve it, ruined professional wrestling. So his new documentary is him trying to redeem himself. He gets back in shape, he gets back into the ring, and he does it in a pretty unorthodox and pretty dangerous way. So ostensibly, this is a conversation about wrestling, but it ends up being a conversation about just trying to prove to yourself that you're good enough. After that, Annie Atkins talks about designing graphic props for films. Snotty Nose Res Kids, one of the best hip-hop groups in this country's history, perform. Well, we played the performance from a couple of months ago, back when we could have performances. And finally, Annie Murphy from the show Shit's Creek. All right, show starts now. When I say the name David Arquette, I mentioned you might think of his most famous role, the bumbling and lovable cop Dewey Riley from the Scream movies. Maybe you remember David Arquette uh, back from the tabloids when he was married to Courtney Cox from Friends. Um, She was Courtney Cox Arquette in the opening credits for a while. But if you watched any world championship wrestling matches in the year 2000, then his name brings up some very different memories. WCW World Heavyweight Champion, my man, Mr. David Arquette. Yeah! But you should know better than to trust someone from Hollywood. 20 years later, it's still kind of hard to believe that David Arquette, the actor, was, for a few short months, an actual professional wrestler. But even though he won a championship match, even though he won the belt, like he had the strap, as they call it, a lot of wrestling fans saw David's wrestling career as a joke, or even worse. He was accused of disgracing the sport, and as a wrestling fan, those criticisms hurt him more than any flying elbow ever could. So now he's done something about it. David Arquette has returned to the wrestling ring to show all the haters around him that he was and is a serious wrestler, and he brought a film crew with him. You Cannot Kill David Arquette is a documentary that captures all the blood and sweat and tears that David endured on his road to wrestling redemption. And as you're about to hear, it's wrestling redemption and it's personal redemption too. Here's our conversation. I mean, it's a bit of a hard thing, you know, you, you make this film and it's, it's very raw and it's very personal and then you have to wait, like it gets delayed because of COVID-19. How have you found uh, the delay? Oh man, it's been wild. We had to finish the film uh, and then uh, get it out. We were supposed to premiere at South by Southwest and I'd always wanted to go to that festival. So we just have had to sort of readjust. We just had a sort of premiere that was open to the public at a drive-in so everyone could keep social distance and all that. So it's been adjustments, but, you know, we're glad that the film's out, that people can see it, and I hope they enjoy the story. I think the story really talks to people on a lot of different levels. 
about personal struggles, about um, just, you know, having a goal or having a dream and really going after it, not letting people define who you are, sort of standing up for yourself. I think I think so too. I want to tell the whole story here as much as we can anyway. So back in 2000, there was you were doing Scream 3, but you were also doing Ready to Rumble. And your stint in the WCW at that moment was it was promotional, right? Like you were asked to be part of the WCW to go in and promote the movie. That's how you ended up in the ring in the first place, right? Yeah, WCW was owned sort of by Warner Brothers at the time. So it was this whole parent company kind of thing with WCW. And to promote the film, that was a Warner Brothers film. They put me on the show. Uh, I did a little something and it got a really good reaction. And then Vince Russo had seen me backstage kind of getting signatures from all the wrestlers on a little toy uh, wrestling belt. Yeah, he was like a and booker. Uh, Vince Russo was, would be the guy who helped create the storylines for WCW and for WWE for a while. Yeah, and at that time, he was sort of the top writer. So he saw me doing that, and it cut in his head that this guy's a fan. Let's make him the champion. And they came to me with the idea. I thought it was a horrible idea. <laughs> But I did it anyway. Uh, it was to promote the film, and I, I got to like tour the world with the or the country with Hulk Hogan and Sting and Macho Man and Ric Flair. So I was just like, "This is, this is incredible. This is like a dream come true for me." So when you get the belt, um, it's controversial, you know. And you talk about this in the film, and you do it through a bunch of YouTube videos of people saying things like. Oh, this was the end of the golden era. I mean, this was the end of professional wrestling. This was one of the biggest mistakes in professional wrestling history. And I remember, I, uh, you know, I'm a wrestling fan and I was a wrestling fan then too. And I, I remember when it happened. Now, I was more of a WWE guy. So it was just something I kind of heard about that David Arquette had become uh, a champion in WCW. Why was your presence and like why was your success in particular getting the championship so controversial, you think? I think it was my size, that I was an actor, that I hadn't trained, that it was just, uh, you know, I don't, I just, uh, they saw me as this kind of pushover that was like a joke. So I don't know. I guess that's the idea is, uh, you know, why they, they hated me for it. But um, I always thought of it just as being a fan, kind of like living every fan's dream. But the fact that I was an actor and all those things uh, really upset them. And I think I think there's nothing worse than, I mean, it's, it's all it can be all right if some people hate you because people are going to hate you no matter what. But it sucks so much more when the people you're a part of, like you feel like you're a part of wrestling fandom, when they go after you. I, I, can't, I can't imagine how hard that must have been. Yeah, I mean, I've always just loved wrestling and wanted to love it, and uh, I never wanted to, you know disrespected in any way so this idea in doing this film was truly to to do a love letter to wrestling to kind of let people in on what is wrestling and and why do some people like it and you know you ask most people they're like oh it's for kids or you know it's not real or this or that but we tried to show that it is real the grown-ups love it kids love it it's one of the oldest forms of uh you know performance in america so um, we just really wanted to highlight that. Did did the getting the belt or getting the strap, as they say in the business, like did, did getting <laughs> did getting the belt hurt you as an actor? Do you think it held you back a little bit? You know, they they say stuff like that in the film. There's you have to remember when you're watching this film. We really did want to make a film that was a documentary that also worked as like a narrative kind of film. So they 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 do editing in a way that. You know, at one point I say, I haven't gotten a job uh, in 10 years. That was connected to auditioning because I had just mentioned that I just got my first job from an audition. And I explained that I hadn't gotten an audition uh, job from an audition in 10 years. And uh, right after that, I say, it's not like I haven't worked in 10 years. It's just the works come from people who knew my work. So it's a little confusing. It makes it seem like I'm blaming wrestling or the Scream movies for my career and more so it's, uh, you know, just career choices in general. And the fact that I've been working as an actor for 30 years, it's hard to like, you know, always be super selective. And when you kind of grow up like I did with a father that was a uh, like a character actor, as they say, you learn to just go from job to job. You're like less selective as much as trying to give, get a job to pay your bills. 
I want to play something from the film. Uh, take a listen to this. What I love about wrestling is the majesty. Like, it's a... It's a larger-than-life. It's this, you know, mythological world where there's the good guys and the bad guys. And they're like gods. If you just tuned in, my name is Tom Power. My guest is actor-slash-wrestler uh, David Arquette. We're speaking about his new documentary, You Can't Kill David Arquette, which follows his return to the ring after an 18-year absence. I want to go back to something you just said there. You said my father was a bit of a jobbing actor. Uh, he was a bit of a jobbing actor, but he played Superfly Jimmy Snuka, a wrestler in Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling. So, like, it's in yeah. you. Like, it's there in your, in your entire life. Yeah, he did the voice in the cartoon series. My dad was a voice actor and, you know, commercial actor. So that was really cool. And it was at a time where I was just in love with all of that stuff. And I got to see Hulk Hogan and, and Andre the Giant. And I got to see Andre the Giant in person. And it just blew my mind, like, seeing him in person. So, um, yeah, I mean, when you fall in love with wrestling and you love wrestling – you know, it sticks with you. I have friends that we just talk about wrestling and like we bond over wrestling. And that's typically what it is. A group of friends that also enjoy it and understand the storylines and don't take it all so personally. Yeah. I mean, and me and my friends, we used to have these wrestling parties in college where, you know, we would get together and we would watch like WrestleMania three or WrestleMania four. And we had a drinking game associated with it that if you had to drink on a two count or drink on a chair shot or something like that. But there's something different about getting in the ring. Actually, there's a lot different between being a fan and watching on TV and getting in the ring. What do you love about maybe either spiritually or even physically about being in the ring, being an actual wrestler? Oh, man, there's so much incredible stuff that I learned on this. About being an actor, you know, taught me a lot about being an actor. You have to be incredibly calm and patient. And you have to, if you show excitement, you... You have to kind of be in control of your body in a, in a, in a really unique way. Uh, you, I don't know. There's stuff about timing and trust. stuff about listening. Yeah. Trust. There's stuff about like selling something with just emotion in like just the slightest emotion in a room that, you know, the fans are, you know, hundreds of feet away and they're still like feeling this energy of this moment. I, I can't really describe it on top of like, you're getting thrown around and punched and just trying to keep your head straight. Like literally moments of saying like, don't pass out, don't pass out. Like, okay, you're still awake. <laughs> that means you haven't passed out. What am I supposed to do next? <laughs> you know, there's all these moments that get, are really intense. Yeah, and I, I think the reason I, I think trust came up for me is because this is a really cool thing about wrestling that I, I'd love if you could just talk about for a second. If you half, if you're scared of the jump you're about to do, you're gonna get hurt. But if you fully do it, you won't get hurt. I mean, that's typically the opposite of how things go. If you kind of halfway do it, you have a better chance of staying safe. If you fully do it, more likely you're going to get hurt. But if you halfway do wrestling, you're going to get hurt. And if you fully do it, you won't. It's so true. I mean, there's something called a cannonball, which I run into the corner. Someone's in the corner. I run and you do a quick front flip into them and your kind of legs fall on them. But that's a exact like thing. If you half-ass that, you're landing on your head or you're going to take your forehead on the ground. You just have to be really – you have to commit. and You have to commit strong and you have to commit tight. And you have to go for it. Like that happens a lot in wrestling. And, yeah, there are moments where you half-ass it or you, you, do, you just panic a little or whatever it is. Those are the moments where you try to avoid. There's a metaphor for acting there, don't you think, though? Like, yeah. Don't you think? Yeah, there's a complete metaphor for acting. I mean, you know, wrestling is acting. It is, uh, you know, it's performance on a really intense athletic level. You, The kind of, like, promos they do and stuff isn't easy. You might think it's easy. It's really not easy. And the way they structure it and the way they get their energy out and the way they stay passionate about stuff, they're on point and the way they make you feel – it's all about eliciting emotion from the audience. And I did have one question about your choices around wrestling. Is that the, the path you decide to go for in your redemption, if people are picturing you go right back to the WWF or you go right back to the WCW, which doesn't exist anymore, but that's not what you do. I mean, you wrestle on the independent circuit. 
And the path that you choose, or at least the path that you're in in this film, is more of the hardcore wrestling path. And what that means is you're getting slammed on thumbtacks. You're getting, you're using broken glass. You're, you know, you're, you're bleeding. We're not going to talk about how that actually happens, but you're bleeding in front of the audience. That's different than the more kind of finessed, uh, maybe more, more Japanese style of wrestling that you could have gone through. If you were going to come back to wrestling in your 40s as part of your redemption, why did you pick such a bloody hard style? Well, when I was first, uh, you know, involved in WCW, Backyard wrestling was just like a thing. It was like videotapes and people were watching him. But that whole sort of phenomenon was something that kind of everyone as little kids were trying to do little backyard wrestling moves and stuff. You have to be really careful because you have to be trained. It's a very dangerous sport. But we did know that these – and a lot of the like wrestlers like the Young Bucks and stuff like that sort of came out of this doing-it-yourself world. So – um we wanted to sort of start at the bottom and kind of honor that and go up that that sort of road. And, you know, Mick Foley's a friend of mine. He's always been a hero. So this whole world wasn't that, like, foreign to me. And one of the things I knew that it's like, well, you might not be big enough, you might not be strong enough, but you can be crazy enough. <laughs> <laughs> and that's sort of where my lane is. Like, so I can be crazier than any of you guys, and you have to be tough. So, um, but as, as as part of that craziness, you you wrestle with glass, and you know, I want to point out that the wrestling with glass—it's all very safe. Like, people are looking after one another, and, uh, and <laughs> it's it's not so safe. You know, Tommy Dreamer called me up after that match. He said, "Listen, you can never control fire or glass. You got to be careful with that stuff because you end up cutting the side of your neck, and there's a moment where you can tell that you're worried you're about to bleed out." And you get out of the ring in the middle of the match and you're holding your side of your neck with a towel or with your hand, I'm sorry. And I've, I just see panic in your eyes. And I wonder, you know, given that this is part of your redemption and, and you were in your 40s and you're an actor, what was going through your mind in that moment, standing outside the ring, holding under your neck? There was a few things. I mean, it's really hard for me to watch, but um, I thought I was dying. So I was like, Definitely seeing my life flash before my eyes. Um, you know, I was just thinking, what should I do? I didn't want to end the match without a clear sort of ending to it. <laughs> I wanted like to give the fans what they wanted. Um, but, you know, I heard Luke Perry's voice. He was in the crowd. I couldn't even see him. But he said, Davey, it's Luke. And I said, Luke, is it pumping? And I sort of, oh, like... Oh, revealed, took my hand off the wound and he said, it's not pumping. So I knew at that point it wasn't pumping. So I, um, I got back in the ring and I finished up. It was, um, it's a, it's a really powerful moment. And especially that you, that you go back in. Um, Thanks. Are, are you also seeking some redemption here? Like, do you, do you feel like the redemption worked out? either as a wrestler, but are you also kind of seeking it as an actor? Really, it's, you know, the whole path of this whole thing is I, I learned that it was about believing in myself. It was about, you know, I am a champion. Like, you're a champion. We're all champions of our own lives. You know, we are the greatest. So um, that's sort of what I learned. You know, also that my wife is the true champion who produced this and, you know, was instrumental in making this film possible and put up with all the other other things and also booked everyone's flights and, you know, is crying about me being rushed to the hospital and then is calling the director and making sure they got the right shots. You know, she was real, a real boss in this whole thing and really the one who deserves all the accolades. And it, it's lovely to see you, you get that sort of uh, another shot at it, you know, another shot at, at wrestling. And also you're, you're doing Scream again now too, right? You're doing a new Scream. How, how are you feeling about that? It is sort of a going back, back in a good way kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've been in the business for 30 years. It's incredible to come back to Scream. I'm really excited about working with Courtney Cox again and and uh, the radio silence directors of of, uh, of Ready or Not um, and Jenna uh, Jenna Ortega, who I worked with on Saving Floor. It's going to be in the film. 
We're waiting on Neb Campbell. We're hoping that she joins as well. Canadian. I'll, I'll see what we can do. I know. Please. I'll see we what... need her. She's the heart and soul of Scream. So it wouldn't be the same without her. Do me a favor. And maybe this is, this, is, this is the good way to end up. You mentioned Luke Perry earlier, your good friend who, you know, he rushes to your side when you're holding your neck thinking you're going to die. And, and there's such a beautiful moment between you. And I know Luke passed on. And he is um, an icon to us. But he's a person to you, if you know what I mean. Like he's an yeah. icon to us. But so I was hoping you could tell me maybe a Luke Perry story, like a something, something, some something you remember about him, something you guys did together that means something to you. Maybe to close things off. Well, Luke's just such. He was such a down to earth, like salt of the earth kind of guy. He uh, really loved his family. He loved nature. He um, when he first came to Hollywood, he lived at our house. He Alexis and him and did a movie called Terminal Bliss and. And uh, they, he moved into the house and rented a room from my mom. And he would do all the kind of stuff around the house. Like he was a bit of a handyman so he could fix things. And, you know, so even after he got 90210, my mom loved him so much that he'd come over and help her with a few things. <laughs> He's just that kind of guy. It's, it's, it's lovely to hear you talk about him. And um, as a wrestling fan, it's so lovely to see someone talk about the sacrifice and the art and the heart of that uh, industry. So thank you so much for the film and thanks for talking to me today. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. I mean, just that story right there where he talks about how he was bleeding from the neck, you know, even if he's not, even if it's not pumping, even if it means he's not going to bleed out and die, he's still very, you know, severely injured. And David says to me, I had to go back in. And finish the match and give the audience what they want. Something, something I've been, I'm not, I haven't quite got that conclusion I'm looking for yet, but something I've been reflecting on that for a very long time. That was my conversation with the actor and wrestler, David Arquette. We were talking about the new documentary, You Cannot Kill David Arquette, which follows his return to the wrestling ring. You can watch it on demand starting August 28th. Sound off by Critical Frequency. Hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with From Something Else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Tom Power. You're about to hear an, uh, from an artist right now who plays a crucial role in the filmmaking process. But she's not a director. She's not an actor. She's not a screenwriter. She's not a producer. But she helps create magic in films. She's a graphic designer. Annie Atkins is a graphic designer who makes props and set pieces. So she makes stuff like hand-drawn maps and train tickets and letters and daily newspapers and party invitations. These things are don't often take front and center in a movie, but when you really think about it, they're essential parts of the storytelling of a movie, and they help make a movie become believable. Annie's worked on movies like Grand, Bud Grand Budapest Hotel and Isle of Dogs, Joker, Wonderstruck, and now she has a new book. It's called Fake Love Letters, Forged Telegrams, Imprisoned Escape Maps, Designing Graphic Props for Filmmaking. I have a feeling... After you hear this conversation with Annie Atkins, you'll never watch a movie in the same way again. Or at least it'll be hard to concentrate on the dialogue because you'll be looking in the back going, where did that painting come from? What's that, what's that letter right there? Back in May, Annie Atkins joined me from Dublin in Ireland. Hi, thanks so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to have you. So this book, Fake Love Letters, Forged Telegrams, Prison Escape Maps, about graphic props and set pieces – I think I got to start here. What's a graphic prop? What's a, give, me an, give me an example. 
Well, I suppose in its most basic terms, a graphic prop would be anything that has lettering, a pattern or a picture on it, and pretty much anything that's made out of paper. So treasure maps, banknotes, cigarette boxes, tiny little handwritten notes, old bus tickets, um, and lots of piles of very boring paperwork sitting on office desks in the background. Um you know, it's nice to design a beautiful chocolate box every now and again, but much of what we make is, uh, you know, things in the background pinned to notice boards. Old bills and stuff like that too, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Anything made out of paper. So, I mean, I guess as the graphic designer, you have to figure out what graphic props are needed in a film yourself, right? Like, how do you do that? Well, we always start with the script. Um, so on my first day on any any job, I'll sit down with the script and a highlighter pen and I go through the whole thing and mark out anything that sounds like it might be the responsibility of the graphics department. Um, and then the next stage is to start researching these things because we always base everything on real references. Like even if we're working on a film that's a fantasy or a children's movie or has some kind of absurd premise, uh, the props that we make are still always based on historical artifacts and then we develop them to work for the genre or the tone or the plot of the script in in hand it just helps root everything in something real and gives things that air of authenticity so give me an example here say if you're reading a script and you see a line and you realize okay i'm going to have to make i'm going to have to make something here what's one that would be challenging what's one that would kind of stump you um so I think newspapers can be tricky because they're they're quite dense with with information. Um, like in the Grand Budapest Hotel, it was set in a fictitious country in in uh, Zubrovka, and Zubrovka's paper of record was the Transalpine Yodel. But then we had to design an entire national press as well for all the other newspapers that were on the newspaper stand. So that can be quite quite labour intensive. Um, and then in films that aren't set in fictitious countries, like sometimes we'll we'll make a film that's based on a true story that's set in New York, for example. Um, we might want to use a newspaper like the New York Times, but of course we can't actually use the New York Times. I mean, I think you, you, you can pay them a license fee, but you'd have to create an exact facsimile of the paper. You wouldn't be able to change a date or a byline or anything, which is understandable because they don't want to be complicit in a, in a retelling of history. So instead, we often make up the newspapers to to resemble them, but not closely enough that it wouldn't get past legal clearance. So, what's it like to? I mean, I mean this in the in the most respectful way possible. What is it like to spend so much time on something and know that it's it, if you do your job right, it kind of fades into the background? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'd say about ninety percent of the work we make for a film is supposed to exist in the blurry background. Or if it does get a close-up, it's it's really just a fleeting moment of screen time. But I think, you know, we don't really always make these things directly for the cinema audience. Sometimes we make them especially for the actors. Because a, a film set doesn't look like that beautiful scene you see on the movie screen. In reality, it's full of cables and lights and, you know, guys standing around in North Face jackets drinking coffee. So it's quite, it's quite a weirdly artificial environment. And I think if we dress it with some small, authentic details, we can really help create a more fully realized world for the actors. And that's a real that's a real highlight of this work for me is is hearing about the actors arriving on set in the morning and marveling at all these tiny details of the world that we've created, because they're the ones who have to inhabit these sets all day, pretending to be someone from another time and place. So I hope that what we make can help nudge them that bit further into any particular world. One term that comes up in your book is called the hero prop. Give me an example of a hero prop. Yeah, so a hero, a hero prop is a prop that kind of has a character of its own or it gets its own close-up. It, it has to pass the scrutiny of the audience. So, so for example, one hero prop that I've made would be the Mendel's patisserie box, the pink box in the Grand Budapest Hotel. I think, I think that appears in, in multiple scenes throughout the movie. So you have a new poster series related to the pandemic. What's what's that all about? Yeah, so I kind of approach this the same way I approach designing graphic props. So I wanted to create a series of posters to encourage people to, to stay at home for the lockdown order. Um, and um, uh, my Instagram pals uh, sent me in different advice on kind of how to get through a lockdown in good spirits. So it was things like 
hang a bird feeder and you'll always have visitors or make your bed, dress for dinner, relax. Your productivity is not your worth. And then I drew them up to look like fake uh, public service posters. So the letters are all hand drawn um, quite clumsily in places. There's a kind of awkwardness to it that makes them feel like they might have been uh, government issued in a bit of a hurry. And then the payoff on each one is keep apart, wash your hands, call your folks. I like it. I like it. It feels like it's the government in 1931 telling me not to text my ex. Yeah. <laughs> now is not the time to text your ex. You know what? Good advice. Uh, what was your favorite tip to receive? Um, I liked relax. Your productivity is not your worth. Because at the beginning of it, I really felt like, God, you know, what are we going to do without without work? But um, actually, it's it's been it's been positive in lots of ways. Annie Atkins, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Ah, the old days. That was recorded back in May when I was working from home and Annie Atkins was working from home. That's uh, at her home in Dublin. She's a designer who specializes in graphic design for filmmaking. Her new book is called Fake Love Letters, Forged Telegrams, and Prison Escape Maps, Designing Graphic Props for Filmmaking. And it's out now. All right, I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. This track is uh, called Off the Ledge. It's by the hip-hop duo Snotty Nose Rez Kids. Listen, before I play it, I just want to give you a heads up that this song and this kind of whole setup to the conversation you're going to hear and some of the conversation you are going to hear is um, going to deal with, well, conversations around suicide and death by suicide. So I just want to give you a heads up. If you want to turn off the radio for a while and come back later, you know, please do that. But if not, um, here's a bit of this song. Look at me, man, I'm right by your side All of this pain here will subside What do you need? I'm here to provide I need you here, I don't want you to die Listen up, brother, I feel your love This ain't my pain, it's the pain in my blood That was dealt to my people from genocide days I can't go on surviving this way Yes, you can, just give me your hand I feel your tribulations I'm doing my best to understand Your problems and frustrations You're doing your best, I get it I'll be on repair, forget it Nah, life will get the best of you if you let But how can you know about a life that's Off the Ledge by one of the greatest hip-hop duos in this country's history, Snotty Nose Reds Kids, also known as the rappers Young Tribes and Young D. And if you were able to spend some time with the lyrics just then, and if you are able to spend some time with their lyrics, um, it imagines a conversation between two friends, and one is about to attempt to die by suicide, the other's trying to talk him out of it. And Snotty Nose Reds Kids brought this song to life as a way of coping with death in their own lives. Uh, a few years before they released this record, um, Young Tribe's brother died by suicide. And the album's infused with a lot of really powerful personal history. I mean, they explore what it was like growing up on the Kitimat First Nations Reserve in BC. And their stuff really has found a way to resonate with listeners all over the country. Snotty Nose Res Kids stopped by to talk about all of this. This is way back uh, pre-pandemic, but they started with a performance. This is Snotty Nose Res Kids with Yuck Su Yuck. If you was living off the land, Yuck Su Yuck. If you stick it to the man, Yuck Su Yuck. If you die for your people, Yuck Su Yuck. If you see through the evil, Yuck Su Yuck. If you were storyteller, Yuck Su Yuck. If you listen to your elders, Yuck Su Yuck. If you speak your native tongue, Yuck Su Yuck. We forever young, Yuck Su Yuck. We sing it, Yuck Su Yuck. Tell me like a savage, I don't even understand him when he said that you're the baddest. Survival is a habit, rally after rally. I get it from my yard, Bobby started like my daddy. We in the streets like Aladdin, it's making me nostalgic. You got that new lock of me, that translates to magic. Mama, my old game and knowledge, like Sonny, you can have it. I don't mean I'm cooking dope, but, but I'll be tripping at the cabin, man. That's word to my granny. If y'all don't understand me, I'm thankful for the salmon. I'm providing for my family, and I'm living off the land. Like the ones who did before me, I'll be passing on the story of the ones who died before me, man, that's Sasquatch Habitat. Call me up a Gus, I gave the city back, cause I'd rather have the bush. The rest is in the building, they afraid we coming up. The future's in our children, yaksuya. If you a native academic, yaksuya. If you crouch this genetic, yaksuya. If you working both your spirits, yaksuya. 
you know the man is here, I see. Yaks, yeah. If you're urban space native, yaks, yeah. If you carry what is sacred, yaks, yeah. If your hair is long and braided, yaks, yeah. Got me feeling like we made it, yaks, yeah. We sing it, yaks, yeah. I hit him with the warrior dance line, yaks, yeah. They say I'm Michael Jackson bad line, yaks, yeah. They say I look just like my barber, yaks, yeah. I hear a line made like Simba, I feel the spirits around that fuego. What you know about a savage? Man, I ain't no average joke. They call me Moonchild. Grand Boonchild. Heal the wolves out. Nietzsche's on the prowl. Ride together and die together. That's bad boy. Go feel the feather. Generation 7. Reppin' section 35 forever. I'm a warrior just like Kevin. Till creator goes my number. Me and brother bring that thunder. So I'll culture it. That ain't wonder. Nah, I don't want no statues. Yeah. I prefer my karmics. Yeah. Something I can rock with pride when that drum is called. Yeah. Skinny lady, belly getting biggie, chiefin' in the city, feel like Diddy, cause I'm young boy. Yaks, yeah. If you were brought up brave, yaks, yeah. If you was raised by a matriarch, yaks, yeah. If you a warrior at heart, then yaks, yeah. If you was down with me, then yaks, yeah. If you were brought up brave, yaks, yeah. If you was raised by a matriarch, yaks, yeah. If you a warrior at heart, then yaks, yeah. That was Yuxi Yuck. That's not in those res kids. Uh, I want a big shout out to DJ Cookum on the ones and twos on that one. Respect the Cookum. This t shirt. The record's called Trap Lines. Um, when, did, when did your rap start to become a little bit more activism based, a little bit more about, about real things? Yeah. So we come from Kitimat Village in Northwest BC, and we live in a reservation about 15 minutes away from the town. And that town was built on industry. That's why everyone came into that town. It was built on Alcan, Methanex, and Yurkan. And growing up, we were looking at, okay, like my old man was a heavy-duty mechanic at the plant. And it was always like, okay, you're going to get out of high school. You're going to go to school, and you're going to go work at Alcan. You're going to go do this. You're yep. going to go work somewhere in industry, right? So, so that's all we really knew growing up. But when we moved to Vancouver, uh, we realized that there was more to life than going to work at Alcan. And we, we were seeing, like, people, indigenous, the indigenous community is very strong there and very tight-knit. And a lot of support is inside that community and i went to a concert at the york theater and it was an all indigenous with like some acts on the side yeah and that theater was sold out who was playing it um jb the first lady was actually playing there and i was like blown away by how many people were in that theater it was actually i think their group was called intertribal Mm -hmm. at the time and when i got out of there i was called darren i was like yo we gotta like start doing this for real like start like rapping about real stuff and around that time, I was surrounding myself with really active uh, people in, in Vancouver and really like activist-minded people. Yeah. And yeah, that's what really changed my views on the way that I looked at myself and the way that I carried myself. So do you, how about you? Like the, you know, the process of sitting down and actually you know, having to write about these things, it's not, it's not always easy? Uh, no, not especially in the beginning. Ironic as it may sound, like my lyrics started to change once I started growing my hair. And, like, the longer my hair started to get, the more pride I started to feel. Yeah. And the more connected I started to feel to the people. And and that was during the time our first album, self-titled album, Starting Those Res Kids, was in the works. You know, and then it just grows from there. I mean, I look at your last record, The Average Savage. You know, I, I, it was, I saw it as this really interesting way of, like, kind of reclaiming negative stereotypes about Indigenous people in, in, in North America. You know, why was that important for you to do? <clears throat> um... That was really important for me because I seen the way that our people were being treated. And it happened a lot in my home territory of Kitimat. Um, Not to put them on blast or anything because there was a lot of great people that I grew up with, a lot of really good friends. But there was also people out there that had a lot of hate inside of them, like grade five, grade four, like 10 years old. One of the schools came to our community to play netball. And it was like a netball game for the league for whatever, like the school thing. And... um, one of the students started to chant, and it was uh, savages, savages. They're barely even human, like, Jesus after Christ. we beat them. That was, like, something that, like, was really engraved in me. And it made me realize why there was, like, bullies in our community, why there was people that hated us, even though they looked like us. Because we were taught to hate ourselves from a young age. That's how they oppressed us. And I had to talk about that. 
You know, I, I, I'm hearkening back a little bit to, to Darren when you were telling me a little bit about like going, going on stage, uh, that you're a quiet person off stage when you go on stage, something else happens. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the feeling that you were experiencing these things and you were struggling to deal with them. You were trying to figure out what was going on. But somehow when you actually write about them, when you, you, you get more clarity, am I, am I onto something there? Oh, yeah. It's definitely a healing tool. Yeah. You know, and like the first album was us dealing with some like just traumas that happened in our life. You know, like he lost his brother to suicide. I was close with him, you know, and that really had a impact on us. And the way we got over it is like we wrote two really emotional powered songs. Like one was called Off the Ledge. It was like a conversation between the two. One is contemplating suicide and the other one's trying to talk him off it. And then the next song is called Black Blood and that's us talking about the aftermath. It's like a, a final goodbye in a sense. Are, are, you, are you able to listen to those now? Or, or? Um, I used to like listen to them every once in a while, but after I wrote it, you know, like it was really hard for me like to get over that and get over like what had happened in, in my life when, when I lost my brother. Yeah. And I'm so it, sorry to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, but yeah. So like writing those songs is really a powerful healing tool for me. And like after I wrote that, I felt normal again, you know, like because I had we put that out to the world and that's not Eno's Res Kid album. I had kids from all over North America messaging me and not only kids, but like grown people too, being like how tell them, letting me know how much that album helped them, especially Black Blood off the ledge and my people, because it showed them like what they're going through. They're not the only ones going through that and they can reach out to people and talk about it because that off the ledge was me and him talking and I was talking like I was my brother and he was talking like he was someone that was there to support him where that conversation never happened because my brother was not down for those kind of conversations. It's like sum all that up. Like once we wrote that, it gave us a clear headspace for the average savage. Like, okay, now we can focus on what's going on in the world, especially to indigenous people and to the land protectors. Right. So we had to go through that first album, that project, the healing process before we were able to speak about the average savage. So, so tell me about this new record. You know, I'm, I think so far in this conversation, we've gotten like the progression from the beginning to the first record to yeah. Trapper Savage. So, so tell me a little bit about this one. Yeah, Trapline is like about um, connecting identity to land. Mm-hmm. So you can't talk about land without talking about identity. You can't talk about First Nations identity without talking about land. Uh, Trapline is about finding yourself um, wherever you are and carrying, carrying what, you, what your ancestors have left for you. Uh, Trapline to me is about uh, like us being in Vancouver, but still holding a piece of our community in our heart. Is, that, is it hard to do? Um, at times, yeah. At times, I get kind of homesick and stuff like that. Yeah. But like, I got my partner that lives with me. I got my two dogs. You know, so that's like that's home for me now. Mm-hmm. And um, to add to that, like our like our traditional trapping territories are Waitwas, and those are mountain peak to mountain peak, and each mountain peak to mountain peak, you have a, a, a body of water, and that's your weight was. And in our community, in our culture, we have 54 weight wasses and five clans, and those are divided up into the clans in each house group, and those are passed down from generation to generation. They're hereditary. So your weight was is what you have permission to hunt on. Mm-hmm. And that's what that album is about. It's about um, connecting to that land. So, so tell me a little bit. You're going to play uh, I Can't Remember My Name? Yeah. Do you want to tell me a little bit about it before you play it? No, the song, like the title suggests that we don't, I can't remember my name, like we don't know our place in a society and we don't know our culture in our ways, but the lyrics say otherwise. Yes. Our people were forced to forget our culture. We were forced through like banning our cultures like potlatches and banning the use of our language and taking our children from our care and putting them into residential school systems so that they could take the Indian out of the man. And I can't remember my name is like he said, it's um, us reclaiming that power and it's reclaiming everything that was stripped from us and letting them know we still have that. And exactly like he said, like the title suggests that we don't know who we are, but the lyrics are the exact opposite of that. And also like, you can see both sides. So in the song, you can hear us reclaiming, but at the same time, we're talking about how the world sees us. I'm excited to hear this. This is, uh, I can't remember my name. This is Snotty Nose Res Kids on cue. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pray for me, pray for me. Come ready to cry for me. There's not a 
money to make. Yeah. Give me young savage a break. Yeah. There's not enough food on my plate. Yeah. Give me a reason to pray. Yeah. Lady, just let us go crazy. Yeah. I can remember my name. Yeah. Damn, I'm a bit out of place. Yeah. I can remember my name. Yeah. Your faces, they all look the same. Yeah. I can remember my name. Yeah. I'm a savage from back in the day. Yeah. I can remember my name. Yeah. Talk about SNRK. Need you with attitude. Gang, Nietzsche gang, Moccasin, tan on everything. Oh. Save the creative for Hover. Oh. I'm smudging that dirt off my shoulder. Yeah. Indigenous bastards, we be the baddest ones with the status. Diamond like Dallas, I'm proud of me. Beer on my hand, no surprise. Savage as hell, the society. Yeah. My name been the only way. Only way. Last word to a ship way. Humble with a little bit of Kanye. Okay. Nietzsche about to go crazy. Not enough money to make. Yeah. Give me young Savage a break. Yeah. There's not enough food on my plate. Yeah. Give me a reason to remember my name. Yeah. My damn, I'm a bit out of place. Yeah. I can't remember my name. Yeah. Your faces, they all look the same. Yeah. I can't remember my name. Yeah. I'm a savage from back in the day. I can't remember my name. Forget the fame, I be switching lanes. Let me navigate, no compass. We against the grain, we are not the same. We ain't about to get lost in the jungle. Hell nah. Now you're feeling uncomfortable, that's where I'm coming from. You're coming from the grind and I'm coming from the struggle. We be on the next wave yelling out. Cowbunga! Let's about to rock the world, let's rumble. I go scolding, curate, go crazy. Hate on my bed, put that in braids. SNRK, remember the name. Swimming through the cream of the crowd. Oh, mama, don't let me get lost. Yeah, I'm finding my way through the sides. Oh, show me the way to the top. Look, there's not enough money to make. Yeah, give a young savage a break. Yeah, there's not enough food on my plate. Yeah, give me a reason to pray. Yeah. Created this let us go crazy. Yeah, I can't remember my name. Yeah, goddamn, I'm a bit out of place. Yeah, I can't remember my name. Yeah. Y'all look the same. I can't remember my name. Like a savage, like back in the day. I can't remember my name. I tried to say this is that that um Snotty Nose Res Kids are the mix of very, you know, very serious, very powerful music, and also really funny and playful music. And I don't know, I, I really feel like they have everything you need. Like they are just Really one of the best hip-hop groups in this country's history. Snotty Nose Res Kids with I Can't Remember My Name. They performed that uh, here in Q back when we could have performances here on Q. They're a rap duo from the Kinemat community on the northern coast of BC. They were nominated for the Polaris Prize last year for their album, Trap Line. Here's some stories we're looking at for you today. Well, if you can believe it, I mean, it still sort of feels like March and April or to have just gone on forever. But September is on the way, and the September cover of Vogue magazine is always a pretty big deal. People all over the fashion world wait with bated breath to see who will make the cover each September. And this year's choice for the cover is a Canadian, Toronto-born designer, Aurora James. Vogue has some huge photographers and A-list celebrities at their disposal to create their covers, but this year Vogue commissioned Jordan Castile to paint any one of their choosing so long as they wore something from pre-selected designers. So Jordan chose to paint Aurora James swathed in a sky blue gown. She's the designer behind Brother Veli's. It's an ethical brand that makes shoes and bags in collaboration with artisans in Ethiopia, South Africa, Kenya, and Morocco. Jordan says he chose to paint Aurora because of her creation of the 15% Pledge. It's a movement that challenges retailers to stock 15% of their shelves with products by black-owned brands. Now the magazine is getting on board. Vogue says it will increase its black freelance talent by at least 15% of total hires for the year. This includes writers, photographers, and stylists. Recently, the media empire Condé Nast, which owns Vogue, has come under fire for its treatment of staffers of color. Thus, the Powerpuff Girls were born. Using their ultra superpowers, Blossom, Bubbles, and Buttercup have dedicated their lives to fighting crime and the forces of evil. And yeah, the Powerpuff Girls are coming back. But this time, they're older, a little more jaded, and much more lifelike than the animated series. The Powerpuff Girls originally ran for six seasons between 1998 and 2005 
on the Cartoon Network. Now the Powerpuff Girls have been picked up by the CW Television Network, who are developing it into a live-action series. In this updated version, the tiny superheroes are disillusioned 20-somethings who resent having lost their childhood to fighting crime. Another gritty reboot. Still no word on when the show will air. All right, take a listen to this. That song is called Love Like a Sunset Part 2 by the French band Phoenix. That is the song that plays in the trailer for the sixth and final season of the TV show Schitt's Creek. The show wrapped up earlier this year, and letting go of the Rose family, Johnny, Moira, David, and Alexis has not been easy. If you haven't seen the show, Schitt's Creek is kind of like the little engine that could. I don't mean in terms of plot. It would be pretty weird if the TV adaptation of that story took six whole seasons to tell, but maybe it also is deserving of a gritty reboot. What I do mean is that Schitt's Creek started off as this humble Canadian series set in a tiny town, and then it just kind of exploded. It has a huge fan base outside of this country. I find whenever I leave this country, when I was able to leave this country, uh, people would see my Blue Jays cap and they would say, Canada, right? And I would say, yeah. And they'd say two things. One would be Drake and the other would be Schitt's Creek. Now it's nominated for 15 Emmy Awards, including Best Outstanding Comedy Series and Best Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Comedy Series for Toronto's own Annie Murphy, who plays Alexis Rose. Annie Murphy dropped by the Q studio back in January, just before the final season of Schitt's Creek was about to premiere. Annie's my old buddy. Here's our conversation. Annie, when you started on the show, I think we knew each other then. And I remember, like, knowing that you were going for some Canadian show or something like that. What did you think about it when you first sort of went for it? Well... So I was in L.A. for pilot season and things were not going well. No? I'll tell you that much. Um, what do you mean not going well? Well, my so to paint a little picture, um, my apartment had just burnt down. Right. Um, I hadn't worked in about two years. Right. And I had just blown my very, very first uh, screen test, like really blown it. Do, do you mind if I ask what happened? Uh, oh, oh, you know, walking in, forgetting – Every single line that I had, right. um, asking to start again, then just saying, actually, I don't think I know this. Um, <laughs> I don't so mean to laugh, sorry. Yeah, no, no, it was uh, terrible. Right. Um, and your house burned down? And my house burned down. Um, and so I was just kind of like, oof, well, uh, the universe is saying pretty loudly to, to do something else. And then I got this audition for Shit's Creek. And on the breakdown for the audition, it said, <laughs> Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara were attached to the show. And kind of my heart stopped beating and then fell out of my mouth because these were two people that I had just so, so admired for such a long time. And so I knew, like anything they touch turns to gold. Um, So I knew it was going to be something really, really special. Really? Yeah, of course. I mean, the premise was great and, Mm -hmm. you know, they're they're in it and Chris Elliott was in it and... Mm -hmm. But I didn't really know what it it would become. When did you start realizing that it had become something pretty special? I think it really started snowballing after the show got added to Netflix. Like CBC and Pop were so beautifully involved, but then Netflix just kind of opened the doors. Pop is the American station that the show airs on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, So, yeah, as soon – like the day that we got added to Netflix, it was just kind of – obvious that something big was happening how did you notice it social media bud yeah as yeah it's it um just followers and followers and retweets and ads and all this stuff. really you saw you saw a spike yeah oh big time um and then you know people like tony hale um from veep and arrested development and arrested development um started tweeting about it and then it kind of started getting into the hands of celebrities in Hollywood and I mean it's so I mean can I say this am I allowed to say this it's so rare for things in Canadian television to work out <laughs> I, am I allowed to agree with that yeah I don't know if not we'll cut it but it's it's very very it's 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 it really did yeah it really did I realize people may not be that familiar with the show necessarily so this is originally the premise was just a very rich family 
loses all their money, have to resort to living in this small town they once bought as a joke. And I think that that sort of premise was what we all thought the show was. But the show has, has an incredible amount of heart, a incredible amount of love, a incredible amount of stories. And I feel like your character started as one thing, this sort mm-hmm. of like Paris Hilton-y socialite, yeah. and has become something else. Tell me a little bit about the development of your character. Well, when I first got – when on that same breakdown that said Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, um, it described Alexis and it was, you know, kind of blonde, ditzy socialite um, on paper, not, you know, not a great person, I would say. Not someone you'd really want to be around, quite selfish. And um, But as the series progressed, um, and I have the writers to thank a lot for this is – we got to kind of peel back the layers of her character and and you know as everyone everyone possesses many many different facets of themselves they're not just one tier yeah um and so i got to kind of explore that and i think so much of alexis uh, alexis kind of pre shits creek was in, environmental she was surrounded by very shallow fickle people she was surrounded by money she was dependent on men and um, yachts and those kinds of crazy uh, adventures and that formed her up until that point but when she was taken out of that environment and plunked into Schitt's Creek um, we kind of start to get to see who she really is and she actually does very deep down have a very kind and generous and unselfish soul um, but you really kind of had to like mine for that over the seasons I'm happy you're talking about who she is deep down I want to play this take a listen oh, you're like a big dirty raccoon David ew no David mm, nom nom for us David never say nom nom again oh yay David yay you try parallel parking in a burka David that's a cute little wood thing David David <laughs> David stop yelling David that is a, a little oh, bit of uh, Annie Murphy playing Alexis Rose. There she is. I think that's summarizing Alexis' relationship with her with her brother David really well. <laughs> yeah. But that, but, you, but you can also tell you can also tell there's a really great connection between you and of course the character, but also you and Dan. Yeah, Dan Levy who plays David. All DL. Um, yeah, keep Dan, it on the DL. We call it. I tell him that all the time. He never does. <laughs> no, it doesn't return my text. To be honest, I know. Yeah, yeah. sorry, my life. Okay, go on. Um, no, Dan and I met for the very first – so when I got the audition, I was like, well, at the very least, I will get to meet Eugene Levy. Yeah. That's, how I, that's what I said when I got this show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you know what? Probably won't work out, but, but at, at the very least, least, I get to meet Eugene Levy. The star will be here. <laughs> um, so I walk into the audition. I'm so excited and it's Dan sitting there and I was like, oh, God. Met Dan, ended up <laughs> as a guy who kind of looks like Eugene. Yeah, I guess they have the same eyebrows. I guess that'll have to do. Um, but then we did our chem- our chemistry test together, and he read with me for the chemistry test, and that's the first time we really kind of got to properly interact. And we just had this weird chemistry right out of the gates. Like, if I, I've kind of tried to explain it as as. We knew each other in a past life, and I was perhaps his m- nagging mother, and he was my, you know, petulant son. Or we had we were married for like seventy five years, or something like that. Like there was a weird, weird connection where we knew how to push each other's buttons and like get under each other's skin, and right. um, and you know, maintain a loving relationship. Right. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of, kind of. Faded, I think that we got to work together. Give me some. Give me like three or four words that describe Alexis. Oh man, um, joyful, um, uh, confident, and handful. How much of Annie Murphy is in Alexis? I think we share a, a similar quality in the sense that we both look for. The positive in a situation, and I mean, I, I at least try to do that. Uh, I want to take you back to season five. Take a listen to this. Are you ready? Let's do it. I'm a Lamborghini. I'm a Hollywood star. I'm a little bit tipsy when I drive my car. I'm expensive sushi. I'm a cute, huge yacht. I'm a little bit single, even when I'm not. I'm a little bit. I'm a little bit 
That is that is Alexis performing her single "A Little Bit Alexis" for an, audit, uh, an audition at the local production of Cabaret. Uh, that is going to be a really kind of famous moment in the show's history of Schitt's Creek's history. Tell, tell me a little bit about uh, that scene. Um, when we were at the table read for this scene, all it said in the script was Alexis performs "A Little Bit Alexis." It doesn't go into any detail, and I think because Noah Reed the season before, had been able to do this beautiful cover of Simply the Best, and he'd kind of been given the reins to, to do it. You're simply the best. Better than all the rest. I was like, I can do this Better myself. So I, I called up two of my boyfriends in the band Colorado, mm-hmm. and um, I, we went to, into the studio for a few days, and I wrote the lyrics to the song, and then Menno and Nix kind of helped me with all of the stuff I had no idea, the music and the production and all that stuff. And we knew that it had to be a joke and we knew that it had to be a spoof. Um, so we listened to you know, Britney and Paris and all these all these um, women who came out with these songs, which we did love. But at the same time, all three of us secretly wanted to make a banger. We just really wanted to make a good song. And so we we pulled out all the stops and did all the poppy hooks and, all, and everything. And um, we created, for better or for worse, a bit of a, an earworm. And I've had people cursing me for it because it really gets stuck in there, especially the, the la la's. What's been a scene that's been challenging for you to do emotionally? Has been because, like I said, the show is not. We all thought it was just going to be like a comedy about class or something, but it ended up being quite an emotional show. How, 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 can you think of a scene that's been hard to get through? Oh, I never have been able to successfully accomplish crying. Which is not great for an actor. You should really be able to kind of do the whole range of things. You can't cry on command? No, Tom, I can't. Um, as of, well, until this moment, at one of the final scenes in the show um, is a very emotional one. And I worry now in, in the finale, people are just going to witness Annie Murphy and Dan Levy just airing their like just going through therapy basically like we're not in character we're just kind of fully weeping in the scene so it was hard to keep a personal emotion out of it because the scene didn't call for snotty snotty violent hysteria and we were both kind of riding the wave of that right (laughs) so to kind of to kind of neutralize that and uh that was that was a that was a tough one you you felt it come over you though it sounds like big time yeah like it felt like it it sounds to me like you you know you, you weren't acting anymore no 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 as unprofessional as that sounds um, let's let's talk a little bit about Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. They play your parents, Johnny, Johnny and Moira Rose. Like you said, you saw that Eugene and uh, Eugene and Catherine were attached to this. That's why kind of, you were kind of excited about doing it. What, do you think you've learned from them? Oh my God, yes, I learned. I was schooled every single day of work. Like what? Um, first and foremost, their um, kindness. They are incredibly kind and generous and respectful of every single person on set. Um, and that is such a thing that I hope to take away with me, um, just treating everyone, no matter who, if they're a PA, if they, you know, like it's not, people shouldn't be ranked on set. There shouldn't be, everyone should be treated with the same generosity and kindness and acceptance. Um, and they do such a beautiful job of that. And uh, also their sense of play when they're work like they've been working together together for forty five years. Oh my god! And because I guess they both have that improv background, they love to just play around and experiment and try things. And maybe it's going to work, maybe it's not. But at least we're we're giving it a shot. And they're they're beautiful professional actors but also there's that sense of joy all the time when they're working even if it's a tough scene or a tough day they always find the fun in it and i've just loved watching that in them obviously it's such an intimidating thing hey to walk into a show with those two people yes and i think when i got the part i was so excited first of all to have booked a job and second of all to have booked a job with these two people that i didn't really realize until basically the night before I had to start shooting that I would have to actually 
work with them. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Right. And, you know, like yeah. go in and be, and be on their in level. their world yeah. and, and on their level, hopefully. Basically, after that first day of, of school slash work, <laughs> um, yeah, it just felt like family, as cheesy as that sounds. Well, speaking of family, I want to take a listen to this. My favorite thing um, on set is watching Dan's dad, Eugene, back at the monitors, watching Dan and his sister, Sarah, act. Eugene gets this huge grin on his face, and he starts mouthing their lines like a proud dance mom. And he's just beaming with pride. That's you on stage at the GLAAD Awards. You were giving Dan Levy a special award for his work in making Schitt's Creek a homophobia-free zone. So Dan Levy plays one of the few... Maybe only pansexual characters on Canadian television? I think you might be right. Okay. So what's 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 it been like for you to be to be a part of a show that's breaking ground like this? Have you are you hearing from people? Very Not much. just in the industry, but this must mean so much to people who watch the show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um it's been so amazing to have a job and then to have a job that I am proud of. But then on top of that, to have a job that is impacting people on a level that's so much more than entertainment um we get and dan in particular but we all have gotten letters from people who um after watching the show have have felt the courage to come out to their families or parents who have um accepted their kids because after seeing how johnny and moira have treated their queer son and um uh, we've been getting letters from people going through chemotherapy treatment who have said that, you know, that this is the show that kind of got them through the hard times and has brought them happiness and hope. And so it's it's been a very, very, very special experience. I just can't – I'm still stuck on what you said to me earlier, that your, like, your apartment had burned down. You had kind of botched a really bad – audition in L.A. You hadn't booked anything in four, four years, two years? Two years. Two yeah. years. Yeah. It didn't look good. Like if you could go back now and talk to that version of Annie the day before she auditions or gets the the audition, what would you say? Um I would I mean honestly looking back, I wouldn't have changed anything. Anything at all. It was a it was a really 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 formative part of my life and it makes this part of my life so much more incredible. Um, yeah, I'm really just holding on to all the good as, as long as it lasts. Annie Murphy plays Alexis Rose on Schitt's Creek. She's nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Comedy Series. That's one of 15 nominations for the show this year. The Emmys will be handed out on Sunday, September 20th. Schitt's Creek recently wrapped up its final season, and you can find all six seasons of the show over on CBC Gem. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, Aretha Franklin's favorite soprano, or the, I guess the woman who was Aretha Franklin's favorite soprano, Audrey Dubois-Harris talks being a black performer in Canada's classical music scene. We'll see you then, later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.